Hi everyone and welcome to this very special edition of History with Sai. Special because it's the start of a whole series of videos and podcasts on ancient Iran, specifically the Achaemenid Persian Empire. I'm really excited to start this journey with you, one that for me began when I was around 12 years old and over time took me through the pages of literally hundreds of books the halls of various libraries and universities, and eventually to many important archaeological sites within Iran. You could say that this video has been a couple of decades in the making. So without further ado, let's begin. Let's start with a story from one of my favorite books, The Histories by Herodotus. Around the year 547 BC, a wise man named Sandanis offered his lord, King Croesus of Lydia, some advice before preparing for a major military campaign. Sire, you are preparing for war against the sort of men who wear leather trousers and leather for all other garments as well. They eat not as much as they want, but as much as they have, since their land is rugged. Moreover, they have no wine, but drink water instead. They have no figs for dessert, nor anything else good to eat. Now, if you should conquer them, what will you take from these people who have nothing at all? And then again, if they were to conquer you, think of how much you would lose. As soon as they taste our good life, they will never give it up. I for my part give thanks to the gods for not putting it into the minds of the Persians to make war on the Lydians. These words were written by the Greek writer and historian Herodotus nearly 2,500 years ago. Though it can't be confirmed, and it's actually very unlikely that this conversation took place, many at the time may have had the same thoughts as Sandanis. Why unnecessarily go to war with a rough, barbaric people whose land had ultimately little of value, especially if you were King Croesus of Lydia a man whose name has become synonymous with extravagant wealth. Croesus, though, seemed unconcerned. After all, the famous oracle of Delphi had foretold that he would destroy a great empire. Though the oracle may have been correct, Croesus' interpretation of its words was not. Ultimately, an empire did fall his own. Starting around 550 BC, within the span of barely a generation, the Persians ruled over an empire that stretched from what's today the deserts of Libya to the banks of the Indus River in modern Pakistan. Historians estimate that at its height, it encompassed at least 2 million square miles and was populated by perhaps as many as 10 million people, if not more. Known later as the Achaemenid Persian Empire, it was founded by one man the ruler of a small kingdom known in antiquity as Anshan, today in the province of Fars, Iran. His name was Kurush, but most in the world today know him as Cyrus the Great of Persia. Since the dawn of human history, the lands of the ancient Near East, what most people today refer to as the Middle East, are where some of mankind's great early achievements took place. The earliest known farms and large settlements that evolved into cities began in this region, mostly along the banks of rivers. 
Writing is also believed to have first been invented here. By the year 3000 BC, the most advanced civilizations in the ancient Near East were arguably those of the Sumerians and the Egyptians. The Sumerians occupied the southern part of an area that the ancient Greeks called Mesopotamia, meaning land between rivers. Starting out as small, independent city-states, these entities became the bedrock for the first kingdoms and then became part of larger empires. The first true empire was founded by a powerful and charismatic Akkadian king named Sharukin, better known to us as Sargon. Around the year 2330 BC, Sargon united the land of Sumer with those of northern Mesopotamia, and then expanded his realm in all directions. Over the centuries, other empires followed, including those of the Neo-Sumerian kings of Ur, various Babylonian dynasties, an Egyptian empire in the Levant, and those formed by the Mitanni, Hittites, and the Assyrians. By around 750 BC, the clearly dominant power in the Near East was the Neo-Assyrian Empire, the colossal descendant of the Assyrian kingdoms of old. At its height, the Assyrian Emperor's dominion stretched from just beyond the Zagros Mountains in western Iran to beyond the Nile River in Egypt, and from the shores of what's today the Persian Gulf, close to the foothills of the Caucasus Mountains. The Assyrians were a very cultured and sophisticated people. However, they ruled through fear. To be on the losing side of a war with Assyria often meant the total destruction of one's kingdom, with those who survived deported to areas of the empire far from their homeland. Thus. Many concluded that it was much better to acquiesce to the Assyrian king's demands than to risk utter annihilation. One of the many groups that came under the rule of the Assyrians were an Iranian people known as the Mada. We know them today as the Medes. Though few outside the study of antiquity may have heard of them, the Medes played an extremely important role in shaping the history of the ancient Near East. Their memory is kept alive today amongst many Kurds who claim to be their descendants, something that they actually mention in their national anthem. Though having no written records of their own, the Medes start to appear frequently in Assyrian texts from the 9th century BC onward. Most of the time, they're portrayed as a fierce people who resisted Assyrian expansion into their lands. The Assyrian king, Shamshi-Adad V, recorded one of his many campaigns against them as follows. I reached the land of the Medes. They took fright in the face of the angry weapons of Asher and my strong warfare, which have no rival, and abandoned their city. They ascended a rugged mountain, and I pursued them. I massacred 2,300 soldiers of Hanasuruka the Mede. I took away from him 140 of his cavalry, and carried away his property and possessions in countless quantities. Of course, the fact that Assyrian kings had to dispatch armies into Media 
nearly every year to subdue restless tribes of Medes, indicates that their hold of the area was tenuous at best. The Medes, though, weren't the only Iranian people in the area. Other such tribes, with a similar culture, language, and religion, also occupied areas of the Zagros Mountains and the Iranian Plateau. One of these was the Parsa, better known to us as the Persians. The Iranian tribes that we first hear about in the 9th century BC were relative newcomers to the ancient world of Mesopotamia and the Near East. An Indo-European people whose homeland is believed to have been the steppes of Central Asia or Southern Russia, it's widely believed that the Iranian tribes, such as the Medes and the Persians, first started migrating into what's today Western and Southwestern Iran sometime in the second millennium BC. By the time that they'd encountered the Assyrians in the 9th century BC, the various Iranian peoples had already spread throughout much of the Zagros Mountains and the Iranian Plateau. For the most part, they lived a semi-nomadic life, but eventually, they formed little fiefdoms and kingdoms. Both Assyrian sources and the later writings of the Greek historian Herodotus portray the Medes as a fiercely independent but disunited people. There were deep rivalries between various Median factions, which probably in a large part allowed the Assyrian kings to exploit them through a policy of divide and rule. Eventually though, the Medes must have realized that they would be confined to a life of Assyrian subjugation if they continued to quarrel amongst themselves. And so, at least according to Herodotus, they chose a man named Diochis to be their king. Forming a stronger, unified kingdom may have allowed the Medes and other Iranian tribes to have survived and even expanded into new territories, especially further south into the region that for millennia had been known as Elam. Since the days of the early city-states of ancient Sumer some 2500 years prior, the Elamites had been the perennial antagonists of the kingdoms and empires of Mesopotamia. Most recently, coalitions of Elamite kings had meddled in the affairs of the Neo-Assyrian Empire by supporting anti-Assyrian rebels in Babylonia. Deciding that it was time to put an end to the Elamite problem once and for all, in 647 BC, the powerful Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal, with a massive army, ravaged Elam and the great city of Susa in a manner that guaranteed the Elamites would never again pose a threat to Assyria. In his own words, Ashurbanipal states, Susa, the great holy city, home of their gods, seat of their mysteries, I conquered. I entered its palaces, I opened their treasuries where silver and gold, goods and wealth were amassed. I reduced the temples of Elam to naught. Their gods and goddesses I scattered to the winds. The tombs of their ancient and recent kings I devastated. I exposed to the sun. I carried away their bones towards the land of Asher. I devastated the provinces of Elam, and on their lands I sowed salt. While Ashurbanipal's destruction of Susa and Elam may have eliminated one of his greatest threats, it also may have ultimately led to the end of Assyria as a political entity. With Elam no longer being a power of any significance, 
the Median and Persian tribes were able to expand and, especially in the case of the Persians, further establish themselves in the lands of southwestern Iran. It's very possible that around this time, the Persians moved into the area of Anshan, which along with Susa, had for millennia been one of the great Elamite centers of power and culture. Ashurbanipal died in 630 BC, and soon a crisis of succession broke out that led to a weakening of imperial authority in many provinces as well as massive rebellions against Assyrian rule. It was in such an environment that Diochis' grandson, Sayasharis, turned the fledgling Median state into a world power. Allying with Nabopolassar of Babylon, the two kings took advantage of Assyria's weakness to launch a two-pronged attack on the ancient superpower, eventually bringing an end to the Assyrian Empire, once and for all. In the aftermath of Assyria's fall, the two allies split the Assyrian territories amongst themselves, with the Babylonians taking most of Mesopotamia and the Levant, and the Medes, large parts of Anatolia, all the way to the Halys River. This brought them into conflict with the Kingdom of Lydia. For five years, King Sayasharis and the Medes fought against King Alyattes of Lydia, with neither side gaining any advantage over the other. In Herodotus's account of events, which he wrote down nearly 200 years after they'd occurred, he states that the Medes and Lydians finally ceased hostilities after day had been changed to night, which scholars have determined is a reference to an eclipse. Such a sight must have been interpreted by both sides that the gods were displeased. Astronomers have been able to precisely date the eclipse to March 26th, 585 BC. The following year, Sayasharis died, and his son, Astyages, became king. When Astyages took the throne in 584 BC, he had inherited a relatively new and expanding empire that may have been the most powerful in the region. While his western frontier didn't change much, it's believed that during the 34 years of his reign, he brought territories in what's now central and eastern Iran under Median control. Unfortunately, it's hard to verify what he did because records of Median activity, as well as Astyages' reign, are almost non-existent. Once again, all we have are the words of Herodotus, who portrays Astyages as a rather aloof and somewhat cruel figure. This may have been intentional though, as arguably the greatest hero in the early part of his monumental work, the Histories, was to be Astyages' grandson, Cyrus II of Persia, better known to the world as Cyrus the Great. I am Cyrus, king of the universe, the great king, the powerful king, king of Babylon, king of Sumer and Akkad, king of the four quarters of the world, son of Cambyses, the great king, king of the city of Anshan, grandson of Cyrus, the great king, king of the city of Anshan, descendant of Tiespis, the great king, king of the city of Anshan. These were the words inscribed on a small clay cylinder that was discovered in 1879 among the ruins of the city of Babylon today about 85 kilometers south of the city of Baghdad, Iraq. 
It gives the lineage of one of the greatest figures in all of world history, Cyrus II, also known as Cyrus the Great, the founder of the Achaemenid Persian Empire. Cyrus, though, is what the Greeks called him. In the old Persian language, his name is Kurush. The Akkadian language inscription on the clay cylinder is one of the few sources believed to be from Cyrus himself. With the exception of a handful of Babylonian chronicles, most of our sources on Cyrus are in Greek, Latin, and Old Hebrew, and they were written centuries after his death. Since many of these sources conflict with each other, it's often difficult to ascertain between what's history and just a legend. In addition, many of the Greek sources contain a good deal of anti-Persian bias. To an extent, this is to be expected because the two peoples in antiquity were enemies. Despite this, when it comes to Cyrus, many Greek writers, including Herodotus and Xenophon, found in him much that they respected and admired, even going as far as considering him to be the ideal king and a role model for all future rulers. According to Herodotus's monumental work, The Histories, Cyrus was the grandson of King Astyages of Media from his mother Mandini's side of the family. His father was Cambyses I of Persia. This would have made him half Mede, half Persian, and also a legitimate successor to the Median throne. It's important to note, though, that not all ancient writers, and even modern historians, agree with Herodotus's account, but his has by far become the most popular version of Cyrus's biography. It's important to note, though, that not all ancient writers, and even modern scholars, agree with Herodotus's account, but his has by far become the most popular version of Cyrus's biography. However, Virtually all of them, along with the Babylonian Chronicle, agree that around 550 BC, Cyrus overthrew Astyages to become the king of a united Persian-Median state. Babylonian Chronicle 7, also known as the Nabonidus Chronicle, states, Astyages called up his armed forces and went against Cyrus, the king of Anshan, for purposes of conquest. As for Astyages, his army rebelled against him, and he was taken into custody. They presented him to Cyrus. Cyrus went to the land of Ekbatana, the royal city, and silver, gold, goods, and property, which he carried away as spoils from Ekbatana, he took to Anshan. According to Strabo, it was on the site of his victory over the Medes that Cyrus established his new royal capital of Pasargade. Along with their king, Astyages, the Medes also surrendered their capital, Ekbatana, and both were treated generously. The Medes were also able to keep their government posts, though under Persian supervision. In fact, they were only second to the Persians in imperial status, and even here, this was negligible. Medes also made up a large part of the armed forces. For most in the region, the Median Empire didn't actually fall, but merely went through a change of management at the top. Unlike his father Sayasharis, Media under Astyages' 30-plus reign was one of relative peace with neighboring Lydia. Not only this, but the alliance between his father and Babylonia had also held intact. 
These arrangements, though, changed with Cyrus's overthrowal of Astyages. You see, both Lydia and Babylon had treaties with Astyages and Media, not Cyrus and Persia. Astyages was also related to the royal houses of both countries through marriage, and considered by the rulers of Lydia and Babylonia to be the rightful king of Media and Persia. Cyrus, in their view, was a usurper. Lydia at the time was ruled by Aliatis' son, Croesus, a king who was believed to have been the richest man in the world. This was probably due partly to the fact that several profitable trade routes passed through his land. Croesus is also credited as being the first king to have minted gold coins, though there is evidence that this honor should actually go to his father. Legend has it that Croesus had consulted the Oracle of Delphi, whose priestesses had told him that he would destroy a great empire, which he took to mean the Persian Empire. This, along with his alliances with the rulers of Babylon, Egypt, and Sparta, gave him the confidence in 547 BC to cross the Halys River into Persian territory. Shortly thereafter, he took the old Median fortress of Pateria in Cappadocia. Then, he waited. To those outside of his new Persian empire, Cyrus was little more than a petty ruler who had happened to have duped the Medes into following him. The rulers of the region's more established kingdoms and empires were probably not impressed nor did they feel threatened. If anything, Cyrus had provided them with the opportunities and the excuse to further their own interests and domains at the expense of what had once been the Median Empire. Cyrus accepted the challenge, and with his troops made the 1,200-mile march to Pateria within a few months. There, the Persian and Lydian armies met in a bloody battle, whose outcome was ultimately a stalemate. Croesus, though, decided that he was outnumbered, and so the next day at dawn, left with his army to return home to his capital of Sardis. In his mind, he could finish the war the following year with the help of his Babylonian, Egyptian, and Spartan allies. Generally, military campaigns in Asia Minor were not conducted in winter due to the cold, which is why he probably thought that he could delay the war until spring. He probably also expected Cyrus to do the same. This, though, was a grave miscalculation on his part. Herodotus gives an apt description of what likely happened. Even while Croesus was leading his army away after the Battle of Pretoria, Cyrus recognized that Croesus intended to disband his army at the end of the march. After some deliberation, he realized that it would be advantageous for him to march against Sardis as quickly as he could, before the Lydian forces could assemble a second time. Having made this decision, he led his army into Lydia and marched so swiftly that he himself was the herald of his own arrival. Croesus thus suddenly found himself in great difficulty, as events had turned out quite to the contrary of what he had expected. Nevertheless, he led the Lydian army out to battle. For at that time, of all the peoples of Asia, none had more bravery and strength in battle than the Lydians. They fought on horseback, wielding long spears, and were excellent riders. And so, the Lydians were taken by surprise, and as a result, a bit disorganized. However, 
they were no cowards, and quickly assembled to defend their capital city, Sardis. In the end, again according to Herodotus, it was the Persians' wits that won the day. When Cyrus saw the Lydians lining up for battle, he grew apprehensive at the number of their cavalry and, acting on the advice of a Mede named Harpagos, he brought together all the camels that had accompanied his army, carrying food and equipment. He removed their baggage and mounted men on them, dressed as horsemen. He ordered them to advance in front of the rest of his army, towards the cavalry of Croesus. Then he commanded the infantry to follow after the camels, and he placed his entire cavalry behind the infantry. The reason he arranged for the camels to face the cavalry was that he knew horses fear camels and can endure neither the sight nor the scent of them, so that the Lydian cavalry, upon which Croesus most relied, would thereby be rendered useless to him. And when they met in battle, as soon as the horses smelled and saw the camels, they wheeled around and fled, and Croesus's hopes were shattered. Despite this, the Lydians fought on, and eventually, many of them, including Croesus, made it safely behind the high walls of Sardis. Cyrus and the Persian forces were now faced with few good options. The odds of a successful, direct assault on the city were dim, as the walls were extremely high and very thick. They could withstand anything that the Persians could throw at them. The other option was to lay siege to and starve the city into submission. The problem here though was that a city as wealthy as Sardis would no doubt have at least enough food to last until the summer, and by then, Croesus's Babylonian, Egyptian, and Spartan allies would have already arrived. However, on the 14th day of the siege, the Persians were able to find a weakness in Sardis's defensive walls, and eventually make it through. Within a day, Sardis fell. Croesus was taken prisoner and sentenced to death, but at the last minute, and due to a sign from the god Apollo, Cyrus spared Croesus's life. The Lydian king was then released, and later became one of Cyrus's most trusted advisors. Afterward, the Ionian Greek states to the west that were once subject to Lydia also became part of the expanding Persian Empire. This tale is, again, Herodotus's account, and as we know, he's prone to exaggeration and probably didn't fact-check a lot of what he heard. Despite this, scholars agree that by 545 BC, the Lydian Kingdom and the Ionian cities of the Aegean were firmly under Persian rule, and though there were several rebellions, overall, they remained part of the empire for nearly two centuries. After the conquest of Lydia, Cyrus focused on the eastern part of his empire. Here we have even less information about his campaigns, but it's believed that from 545 to 540 BC, he both consolidated his hold of the easternmost provinces of his empire, as well as expanded its borders to include other areas around Bactria and Sogdiana, what today would include parts of Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and Turkmenistan. In 539 BC, Cyrus made arguably the most famous and historically important conquest of his reign, that of Babylonia and its magnificent capital city of Babylon. 
Since their joint military venture against Assyria several decades prior, the Babylonians and the Medes had mostly been at peace for approximately six decades. It's even said that Nebuchadnezzar II, the most powerful Babylonian king in recent memory, had married a Median princess. Their current king, Nabonidus, may have also believed, like Croesus, that Cyrus was not a legitimate ruler. If Nabonidus did believe this, then he took little action. In fact, according to the Babylonian chronicles of the time, he barely seemed to take any real interest in running his own kingdom, let alone in performing his duty as ruler in honoring his people's patron god, Marduk. One Babylonian chronicle states, The king did not come to Babylon for the ceremony of the month, Nisanu. The god Marduk did not go out in procession. The festival of New Year was omitted. Nabonidus had also spent most of the past decade at the oasis town of Tema in the Arabian desert. There, according to his own account, he spent most of his time worshipping the moon god, Sin, as well as restoring the deity's shrines throughout his realm. In his absence from Babylon, he left his son, Belshazzar, in charge of the day-to-day -day affairs of running the kingdom. The Babylonian priesthood, as well as perhaps the thousands of devotees to Babylon's patron god, Marduk, took notice of Nabonidus' odd behavior and must have felt that the excessive favor and devotion that he was showing towards Sin were an affront to their own religion. Thus, the Babylonian king became extremely unpopular amongst his own people. After his conquest of Lydia, it became clear that Cyrus would eventually come for Babylon, perhaps simply as punishment for allying with Croesus. Nabonidus must have known this, for in 540 BC, he hastily returned to Babylon and ordered that the statues of the gods and goddesses from other sanctuaries, including Sippar and Uruk, be brought to the capital for safekeeping. Such actions implied that Nabonidus was expecting an imminent Persian attack. Scholars believe that due to their displeasure with Nabonidus, many of Babylon's priests, as well as army officers, may have reached out to the Persian king, promising to assist him if he got rid of their unpopular and sacrilegious sovereign. Not only had Cyrus promised to respect the gods of Babylon, such as Marduk, but his reputation for leniency and the clemency that he showed his former adversaries may have also played a part and helped to rally others to his side. For example, the Babylonian governor of the province of Gutium, who defected and joined the Persians. Cyrus's army reached Babylon on October 12, 539 BC. The Babylonian Chronicle records the event as follows. In the month Tashritu, the 16th day, Gubaru, governor of Gutium, and the army of Cyrus, without a battle, entered Babylon. Afterwards, after Nabonidus retreated, he was captured in Babylon. Interruption of rites in Isagila, or the temples, there was none, and no date was missed. On the third day of the month, Arasamnu, Cyrus entered Babylon. They filled the Haru vessels in his presence. Peace was imposed on the city. The proclamation of Cyrus was read to all of Babylon. And so, 
Persian forces took the capital city of Babylon without any bloodshed. Cyrus himself arrived approximately two weeks later, and his proclamation was read to the people. But what exactly did that proclamation state? For centuries, there was one proclamation attributed to Cyrus that many did know of. It came from the Bible's book of Ezra. Having the Persian king speak in the first person and underscoring his kindness to the Jewish exiles who'd been forcibly relocated to Babylonia decades prior, it read, Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of those among you who are of his people, may their God be with them, are now permitted to go up to Jerusalem in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem, and let all survivors in whatever place they reside, be assisted by the people of their place with silver and gold, with goods and with animals, besides freewill offerings for the house of God in Jerusalem. This passage, though, was written down hundreds of years after the supposed events it describes took place. Most historians and archaeologists wouldn't consider it to be proof of anything merely just part of a story that was told over the centuries before it was actually written down. In fact, for most of history, such biblical passages, along with the words of ancient historians such as Herodotus and Xenophon, were the only testaments that we had with regard to Cyrus's tolerant and benevolent nature. In 1879, an Assyrian archaeologist named Hormuz Rassam discovered a clay foundation cylinder while excavating the ruins of ancient Babylon. And today is our special day because on loan from the British Museum, we have that very cylinder right here, the Cyrus Cylinder. Actually, no, it's a replica of the Cyrus Cylinder, but it's pretty cool because it's the exact same dimensions of the original, which is housed in the British Museum. Now, what we can tell from this, from this replica, is that, well, as you can see here, much of the cylinder has been destroyed. So the text that's on it, the inscription, is only a partial inscription. In fact, I'd say about, just by looking at it, maybe there's probably no more than 60% of it. So we're missing quite a great deal of it. However, the text that does remain, and what it says, is super interesting. When the cuneiform text on it was finally deciphered, it revealed that the Greek and biblical texts mentioned earlier, rather than simply being just stories and legends, may have had some truth to them. Created to commemorate the Achaemenid conquest of Babylon, the cylinder tells how Cyrus was the chosen agent of another god, Marduk, and sent to bring peace and justice to the land. Part of its text reads, I am Cyrus. King of the universe, the great king, the powerful king, king of Babylon, king of Sumer and Akkad, king of the four quarters of the world, son of Cambyses, the great king, king of the city of Anshan, descendant of Tiespis, the great king, king of the city of Anshan. My vast troops were marching peaceably in Babylon, and the whole of Sumer and Akkad had nothing to fear. I sought the safety of the city of Babylon, 
and all its sanctuaries. As for the population of Babylon, I soothed their weariness, I freed them from their bonds. Marduk, the great lord, rejoiced at my good deeds. I sent back to their places, whose shrines had earlier become dilapidated, the gods who lived therein, and made permanent sanctuaries for them. I collected together all of their people, and returned them to their settlements, and the gods of the land of Sumer and Akkad, I returned them unharmed to their cells, in the sanctuaries that make them happy. If one compares these words with the passage read earlier from the book of Ezra, they'll soon realize that the message contained in both is essentially the same. Conquered and new subjects of Cyrus had nothing to fear, and could worship as they chose. Not only this, but in both passages, it's even stated that Cyrus's government would even support the upkeep or rebuilding of the shrines and temples of the various peoples living under his banner. This was a truly novel concept for its day. Most conquerors of cities generally allowed their men to plunder and desecrate the religious sites of the conquered, and often, if they didn't outright destroy any objects of value, would take them back to their capitals as war trophies. In both passages, Cyrus claims to have done the opposite. In fact, he showed deference to and respect towards the beliefs of others. For example, the Jewish exiles who had been living in captivity in Babylonia since the sack of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar II in 587 BC were free to return to their homeland and rebuild their temple. This general policy of tolerance is something that, with a few exceptions, was a hallmark of most Achaemenid kings. It was also very practical, as it would have been nearly impossible to have managed such an expansive and diverse empire in the long term without showing such goodwill towards its subject peoples. In addition to Babylonia, the kings of the eastern Mediterranean, including the Phoenicians, who had up until then paid tribute to the Babylonians, swore allegiance to Cyrus. Leaving his son, Crown Prince Cambyses, in charge of the city, Cyrus is said to have traveled east to deal with Scythian tribes who were causing problems on his northeastern border. It would be his last campaign. According to Herodotus, Cyrus was killed in battle against a Scythian tribe known as the Mesagatai, who were led by a queen named Tomiris. Here's his description of the battle. What happened then was, in my judgment, the most violent of all battles ever fought by barbarians. This is what I heard about how it was waged. It is said that the battle began with each side shooting arrows at each other while still far apart. Then, when their supply of arrows was exhausted, they fell upon each other at close quarters with spears and daggers. For a long time, they fought fiercely and neither side was willing to flee. But at last, the Mesagatai prevailed. A large part of the Persian army perished in this battle, and in particular, Cyrus himself met his end. He had reigned for 29 years. This though is disputed by other accounts, notably Xenophon, who writes that Cyrus died peacefully of old age. Regardless of how he died, Cyrus's body was laid to rest in a modest tomb that he himself had designed in his capital city of Pasargade. Though Cyrus was a great conqueror who established the largest empire of antiquity up until that time, he's remembered today for much more than this. 
He's considered to be the father of the Persian people and the founder of the first true Persian state of any real significance. He's also remembered in the Bible as the one who freed the Jews and allowed them to return to their land and rebuild their temple. Even the classical Greeks and later the Romans, who in general viewed the Persians as their mortal enemies, respected Cyrus as the ideal ruler. Perhaps his true greatness was his soundness of character and ability to persuade many of his adversaries into eventually joining him to form a state that not only tolerated, but respected different peoples, cultures, and belief systems under a single banner. We'll take a look at that state, namely the Achaemenid Empire, in several upcoming episodes. Stay tuned. As always, thanks so much for stopping by. I really appreciate it. If you learned something or simply just enjoyed the program, please don't hesitate to hit that like button because it helps the channel out a lot. Also, check out the History with Sai podcast where I go into more detail with regard to some of the topics discussed on the channel. You can also follow History with Sai on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks again, and I'll catch you in the next episode. Take care and stay safe.